Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's so great to be here with you recording. I love talking about the scriptures with you. Before we move on to the uh, Come Follow Me, just want to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So this week we are in Moroni chapter 1 verse, well, Moroni chapter 1 through 6. Now, uh, Derek, is there any kind of context you want to give for these verses before we uh, dive into the content? Because I definitely got some questions I want to ask about these uh, about these chapters, but wanted to see if you had anything you wanted to contribute before I got to those questions. So, yeah, Moroni basically says, this is bonus content. Like, I thought I was done, but now I have extra time and extra room on my plates and I really want to distill the most important things that I'm going to leave as a time capsule to people later and say, this is what's important to me. So we get a really good glimpse on what he found important, what he thought this is going to be really, this is going to be really helpful to them. And we get a window into his soul and what he treasured. And that's probably where I should leave it for now. I didn't notice that as well, that uh, like you said, bonus content is what we're getting in these uh in these final chapters of the Book of Mormon. And I remember thinking to myself, why were these things that Moroni chose to write about and what he suspected to be his last words, why, why were these the things that he elected to talk about? Because especially in these, uh, in these first six chapters, they're very admin heavy. Like in chapter two, we learn about the 12 disciples of Christ in the Americas and how they had power to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost given to them by Christ. Chapter 3, we learn about how elders are to ordain priests and teachers and what the responsibilities of those priests and teachers were, and also the implication that the disciples of Christ were elders, at least in the sense that the 12 apostles of today are elders. Chapters 4 and 5, we get how to perform the sacrament ordinances, as well as the specific uh, words of the sacrament prayers. And then uh, chapter six, we get a lot of doctrine, including the importance of going to church, the importance of conducting meetings by the Holy Ghost. So I thought to myself, perhaps that Moroni in reading and abridging the work, he probably noticed that there wasn't a lot in the way of administration put in the record. And maybe he wanted to make sure that that stuff got preserved in stating why he's writing, particularly in verse four of chapter one. He says that perhaps they, meaning the words, may be of worth unto my brethren, the Lamanites, in some future day, according to the will of the Lord. Now, I couldn't help but notice the cross-reference for the word worth goes to 2 Nephi chapter 3, verse 12. And I think that's worth considering in noticing Moroni's care for administration. 2 Nephi 3, 12 says, That which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah, shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines, and laying down of contentions, and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins, and bringing them to the knowledge of their fathers in the latter days, and also to the knowledge of my covenants, saith the Lord. Close quote. So, given that particular verse, and given that one of the first and last things that Christ did uh, during his visit to the new world was talk about keeping the doctrine straight and not altering the requirements of salvation, Moroni's focus on 
the detail of this administrative stuff, the detail of these ordinances, of how the power is to be passed on, how the sacrament prayers are to be said, and uh, the fact that the 12 disciples had that power makes some sense. We don't really have this level of detail concerning ordinances or priesthood power up to this point in the Book of Mormon narrative. Neither is the manner in which priesthood authority given talked about in this kind of detail. So perhaps Moroni wanted to acknowledge and honor that which Christ said when he first arrived to the Americas and when he left the Americas about making sure that people didn't mess up the doctrine, making sure that people were not adding to or taking away from the ordinances or adding or taking away from uh, the requirements for salvation. Perhaps Moroni wanted to add some clarity where Clarity didn't really exist prior to that for the benefit of future generations, as he has seen most recently in the record what happens when people don't have that kind of information, what happens when they mess up or pervert or ignore ordinances required for salvation. There's that emphasis. He, he sees value, perhaps as a result of reading the record, he sees value on that kind of specificity and the necessity of priesthood authority, which obviously as the Lord's restored church, we emphasize a lot the necessity of priesthood authority and preserving those ordinances. Uh, do you got any thoughts about that? Well, my mind wandered to this story of Alexander Selkirk, who was a privateer. He's a Scotsman like me, I'm <laughs> Scottish American. Mm -hmm. So he was a privateer and he complained that the ship wasn't seaworthy and the captain dumped him off on this island by himself in the South Pacific. He was stranded there, and well, he was right away about the, because then the ship ended up not functioning later on. But he was on this island for three years all by himself. He probably didn't know if he was ever going to get picked up again or if anyone would find him. He later got found, and he went back to Scotland, and he talked about what he missed. He missed bread because he didn't have any wheat on the island. He had other foods. There was food, so he got his food, and there was, you know, he had plants and animals to eat, but he didn't have any wheat so he didn't have any bread he also did, said he didn't have any salt which i'm wondering why don't you just take salt from the sea but i want to talk about what he missed was was those things and let's look at what moroni must have been missing because the collapse of the community of believers had already taken probably several decades taken place several decades before this and the things that he thought were important that he was pondering on were things that I think are universal, things like ordinances and the sacrament, prayer and preaching and meeting in to get together in community. He doesn't focus on all the things that you would think someone would miss, the cultural pieces like your favorite foods or the favorite arts and theater or opera or all these other things that I think I would miss if I had no human connection for a number of years on a strange island. What is the lesson here? In the in the final moments when, when the going gets tough, everything seems like it would be hopeless. It turns out that Moroni has the most hope when it's all hopeless because he's taking these things as a time capsule and saying, I know that this is going to be useful for some people centuries from now. And that's the things that he prioritizes. And I think there's a slight anti-racist application to this because that tells us the core of the gospel isn't in the funeral potatoes or even the specific style of music, which is way too white and way too 19th century, although I like the 19th century, 
But for global church, we don't all need to pretend it's Utah. And this should give us some pause as to what is important when we think about the gospel. And the universality of it is the important part, not the contingent cultural elements that don't need to be there. And when you're all alone and about to die, those aren't the things that you really cherish. Especially considering that he is doing this for the benefit of a people who are about to kill him or are trying to kill him, which just gives further power to what Moroni is doing here. So thank you for, thank you for bringing that up. I do want to kind of take that to an idea that's brought up in chapter six. You talked about the church, and I, I just want to focus a little bit on something that is said in chapter six, verse five, because I'm always intrigued with the very act of churching, for lack of a better word. We are told that the church is to meet together oft. The church should meet together oft to fast and to pray and to speak one another concerning the welfare of their souls, which I focused for a long time on that last phrase, speaking one with another concerning the welfare of their souls. Because this, for one thing, this isn't the only place where uh, we see that phrase when it comes to how the church is supposed to operate or when it comes to how disciples of Christ are supposed to operate. In fact, this is actually one of several scriptures that is cited when it comes to the framework of the church's uh, own welfare plan and program. There are similar verses in 2 Nephi chapter 1. Uh, we see the Book of Mormon that Nephi sought his brother's eternal welfare and labored all his days for his people's welfare. We see in Jacob that Jacob was desirous for the welfare of his people's souls and was weighed down with anxiety for the welfare of the souls of the Nephites. And then in Mosiah, we read about the Nephites being filled with anguish for the welfare of the souls of the Lamanites. That's in Mosiah 25. In other words, concern for the welfare of ourselves and others is built into the church model. And the Savior himself declared the church as the vehicle for God's work, thereby making the welfare of others, God's work. Elder Uchtdorf, he gave a talk about 10 years ago, I think, where he said that he believed our commitment to welfare principles should be at the very root of our faith and devotion to Christ. Not, not just a gospel principle that we gloss over or ju not just a principle of the gospel in general, but at the very foundation, at the very root of our devotion to the restored gospel, our very devotion to Christ himself. So it makes sense to me that Moroni would highlight welfare as a subject of church worship. This is among the primary reasons we gather together at church. I started asking myself the questions, what this looks like, both the conversation and the welfare itself. Obviously, we got the specific programs on things that, uh, that focuses on things like temporal welfare. And I feel like the church's welfare program has a lot of good things going on, like employment resources, uh, those private, those provident living workbooks on uh, finances and food storage. We got that uh, LDS family services. We got humanitarian services uh, and some more stuff I can't remember. Elder Christofferson, in a talk about uh, why the Savior works through the church, he also talked about, uh, he suggested that there's things we do significantly better when we're organized as a body rather than individually. And one example that he gave, gave was uh, addressing the issue of poverty. So I, I do think there's something to be said for the temporal and something we should definitely, uh, there, there's definitely a conversation to be had there. But I, I wanted to focus more broadly and uh, spiritually on speaking the answer to this question 
and how that can be expanded to the entire reason we go to the church, go to church in the first place. If this, in fact, is at the root of our faith and devotion to Christ, then the intent of church, it stands to reason, would revolve around our welfare. You know, you think about everything that happens when we when we go to church. You think about everything that happens, you know, in the sacrament meeting, in the Sunday school, in the Elders' Quorum and Relief Society. Everything seems to revolve around our welfare in some way or another. Uh, at church, we connect with other believers. You know, we teach each other. We comfort and mourn with each other. We pray for each other. We fast with each other. We do all kinds, all kinds of fellowship. You know what I'm saying? You know, you've talked about how there's a benefit to the universality of church or how church is so universal. And I feel like, uh, one of the beauty, one of the beautiful things about going to church is associating with believers in a Christ believers in Christ who are not necessarily like you or who don't necessarily have your background or don't necessarily share the same other values as you. Like it's nice to be with people who all share the value, the core value of a worship in Christ with you. But you know, it's really nice to be with people and learn from people who also share that same core value, but don't have the same experiences as you or don't have the same background as you. I think there's a power in that. Um, when we come together as a church, then we, we learn from each other's knowledge. We learn from each other's experience. We see our strengths, we see our weaknesses, and we see how they're a very intentional part of our worship experience and our ministry experience. It's an intentional part of our community, even complementary. We need each other then to fully realize the measure of our creation, both as individuals and as a and as a church. I think I've said on the show before that the work of Christianity is very interdependent, that it can't be done in a vacuum. The very, the great commission itself cannot be fulfilled without a church. So I'm always, I'm always a little curious about people who claim to be Christians, but can't embrace any kind of institution because the work of Christianity cannot go forward without other people. It can't go forward without a community. It can't go forward without service to others. We really do need each other to fully realize who we are to be. And this harkens back to something that's in Peter, something that perhaps Martin Luther King Jr. may have had in mind when he said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. I think I'm saying that word right. He said that we're tied to that inescapable network, tied to a single garment of destiny. And what affects one directly defects all indirectly. And then he says, I can't be what I'm what I ought to be without you, and you can't be what you ought to be without me. Our ability to look out for others is multiplied. Our ability to seek for the welfare of others is multiplied as a church, as a community. Our lives live together compels the advancement of the gospel. So I just really like how Martin Luther King, the uh, scriptures themselves seem to validate this idea that the welfare of other people and even our own welfare is all tied together. There's a great interdependence to it and how active engagement in the community seeks the welfare and growth of both the individual and the church. The, The very act of churching the very act of being in a community is what enables us 
to fulfill the Great Commission and to become the best versions of ourselves individually and the best versions of the church. What you said reminds me a lot of what Paul taught in, well, throughout 1 Corinthians, because so much of 1 Corinthians is about the unity of the church and the blessings of navigating that diversity but coming towards what the real underlying foundation is in Christ. So you've got chapter 12, which is the whole one, the church is one body with many members. Uh-huh. And the I can't say to the foot, I don't need you. And this is probably what Moroni is feeling a lot of, what we've got in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And like so much, so much of what you've said is about the value of reading the scriptures in community. This is something people forget sometimes because we have this idea that reading the scriptures is a private devotional thing for a lot of us. And there, that's, there definitely is room for that too. Certainly. It is also very important and necessary for a responsible reading of the scriptures to read it in community. So you don't come away with some little weird rabbit trail of misunderstanding. But not only that, so that you can also benefit from people who see stuff you wouldn't see. I know a lot of people think that I know everything about the scriptures, and I don't. (laughs) I really don't. Because every time I listen to someone who comes from a different lived context, I I see something in the scriptures that I didn't see before. Mm -hmm. An application or a detail or something. Like, I am learning all the time new things in the scriptures, especially when I read it together with someone from a different context. And that's really what some of what Moroni is missing here. The church has collapsed. If you look, I mean, this is one of the most tragic things about this is that all these verbs are in the past tense that the elders administered or that they did kneel down and they did pray or they did ordain people. Like he's talking, and they did meet together oft. He's talking about all these things in the past. These are no longer happening. Mm-hmm. And that should be a heavy weight that punctuates the end of the Book of Mormon. Now, the whole, the narrative arc of the Book of Mormon is a tragedy, and we have to name that. But that's not where the story ends, of course. Mm-hmm. He finds hope in the midst of a hopeless situation. And I think that's that gets back to the core of what I was saying with where he finds his hope is in these universals. And remember, the context is after a long and bloody ethnic and cultural genocide, right? His culture was wiped out. And you would think, oh no, in that context, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about my culture and downplay or denigrate the Lamanite culture. But that's, he doesn't even focus on culture here. Isn't that important? Yeah, very. Especially as we consider our own congregations, especially neglected populations. Like when I thought about this, particularly this act of seeking speaking with each other concerning the welfare of our souls, you know, I think a lot about what that might look like in our own congregations. You, you talked about just now about how there's so much value in, in, a, in reading as a community because somebody else is going to bring something to the conversation that you would not think to bring, even though you know everything about the scriptures, in my opinion. <laughs> no, like... But, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking... Are we considering the souls of black folks during this during the times that unarmed black people in this country, during the times unarmed black people die in this country at the hands of police under dubious circumstances? Are they are we being spiritually fed and having their pain validated 
in our congregations? Are we doing that in our readings of the scriptures? Are we doing that with our considerations of our doctrine and our considerations of what looking out for the welfare or speaking with each other concerning the welfare of our souls looks like, you know? Or do they have to go elsewhere? Because mm. I know that me, in addition to some other black folks, when a black person dies at the hands of police, we don't always go to church the following Sunday because we know we're not going to get what we need there. We'll go to another congregation, perhaps, or we'll just stay home because it's just not the likelihood is just not very high that the welfare of our souls are speaking one with another concerning the welfare of our souls is going to cons- is going to consider our particular needs that Sunday, whether we are in the congregations or not. It may not happen. So we may elect to go elsewhere or just stay home. Like, what about the times that we insist on talking about the family proclamation while there are people in the church or in the congregation who are denied that opportunity to start a family or to be with somebody that they love because of their sexual orientation? Are we really seeking their welfare? When we speak concerning the welfare of each other's souls, are we considering and engaging that conversation in appropriate ways? What about the times women are physically or verbally or sexually or otherwise ecclesiastically abused by holders of the priesthood and we minimize the damage that takes and fail to hold their abusers accountable or otherwise disrespect them? Are we having that conversation about how we don't do the best job of empowering women ecclesiastically or in any way in church? These are the kinds of conversations that I would hope are happening at church when it comes to discussing the welfare of our souls and acting on what that welfare mm-hmm. looks like. So I, I want to, I mean, I'd love to see a little bit more of that. I'd, I'd like to see a lot more of that happening at church when we speak with one another concerning the welfare of our souls, because I, as I've said before, we are just not going to become the church that we're supposed to be or that we're meant to become if we are not considering these neglected populations. Yeah, I want to stop and anticipate an objection that some people might hear or think of. It has to do with this welfare and who gets to determine what is in someone's best welfare. Mm-hmm. Because some people will say, well, I know what's best for gays and what's best for them is to not have a family and to like follow the commandments as I interpret them and live the law of chastity as I interpret it and that's actually what's best for their souls and I know best because I'm a straight person. We just talked about this though in like the book of Mosiah when we talked about administering Mm -hmm. the poor to the poor according to their needs and wants. Like we just had this conversation, like that objection to me, at least in the context of Book of Mormon theology, just doesn't hold water because what we're supposed to do is administer to people, especially those people who are in need according to what they want and what they need. That like, I mean, Mm. maybe that's where you're going Mm. already and I don't mean to. I mean, there's a number of things to say. One is who bears the cost for that? Right. And it's not the straight person that's paternalistically saying, I know what's better for, for you. And the underlying cruelty of this whole approach is that they don't think that we're fully human that somehow they magically know what's best for me because they're straight and my voice doesn't matter because i'm gay somehow it can just be disregarded as though i were a dog you know we take dogs to the vet and we do stuff to the dogs because we know what's best for them right like we say oh this dog needs a surgery we don't ask the dog we know it's best for them. Now, I have no idea what the animal rights activists think about that, but that's how we treat 
uh, queer people in the church. That's how we treat people of color and women in the church, people with disabilities. We, as a, a structure and a culture, tend to say, we know what's best, and we can disregard the pleading and the testimonies of the people who are central to the outcome that we're trying to discuss, and we somehow say, we know what's best. Mm. That's a significant problem because that's not how Jesus did his ministry. He got right down among people. Mm-hmm. And, and that gets, gets back to, I think the root of anti-queer prejudice isn't the scriptures. It isn't any logical or ethical thing. It's rooted in disgust, and it's rooted in the foundational attitude that we're not fully human that we don't deserve a full human life, that we don't deserve to speak as a full human with our own voice and authority and name what we need. The only way that you can maintain straight supremacy is by denying our full humanity. There's just no way around it. And so that's why you can't really reason with these people because it's not based on, their position isn't based on a rational, logical argument. It's based on prejudice and disgust and a complete disregard for our full humanity. Like we have a name and a voice and an ability to speak to what we know. And somehow they claim that they know better than we do and do things to us rather than with us. Mm. Well, I wanna go back and talk about these sacrament prayers. There's so much we could say about the sacrament prayers. They are very rich and and interwoven with so many different themes. And the one thing that's, that kind of sticks out to me is this is in chapter 4, verse 3. So we eat in remembrance, and that acts as a witness that we are willing to take upon ourselves the name of his son and remember him and keep his commandments. So that's what we're doing. We're willing to take upon the Savior's name, to always remember him and to keep his commandments, which he has given us. And I just want to zero in on this language of keep his commandments, which he hath given them. So what does that mean? Like we are pledging to keep the commandments. Let me ask you this. If you go up to some, someone at some random person at church and say, are we supposed to keep all the commandments? They're going to say yes. Then ask them, well, how many commandments are there? They would look at you shocked and they would have no idea what to say right? Probably not. Why would they know the number of commandments? Well, and is it more like, why is it important to know the number rather than the commandments themselves? Like, what is this telling you, Derek? What it's if telling people me, don't know the number of commandments? What it's, well, if we're supposed to keep, all, how can we keep all the commandments if we don't know all the commandments? And I think what happens culture is we, we culturally, we zero in on a, like five or six commandments when, when we judge people and say, are they keeping the commandments or not? It's, well, are they drinking and smoking, law of chastity, tithing, some of these other things that people focus on, that's the commandments. And they think the covenant path is this like checklist of 10 things. And the depth of the tradition is so much richer and more intricate and more powerful than I think we even realize. So I'm unveiling this project that I'm saying I'm going to do, and it's to enumerate all the commandments in the standard works, at least all the ones that I think there's evidence that applies to us. Because there's a number of 
commandments that just don't apply because we're not in the same context or it's not applicable to our time because let's look at what it says it it doesn't just say the commandment says and keep his commandments which he hath given them so there's a relativity here like different dispensations or even different people might be under different commandments having a list of these commandments will do a number of things one is it will help us focus in on some of these commandments that are very much neglected Well, my initial thought is that even though I am convinced that Jesus Christ would command us and has commanded us to engage in the work of anti-racism, my question, I suppose, is since a lot of these commandments, like, for example, would anti-racism or the commandment to be anti-racism be something, be one of the commandments you would enumerate? Yes. I mean, I would look at how it's phrased in Scripture, and then I would would discuss it and interpret it in a way that speaks, that shows how it speaks to our modern language on these questions. Okay. So then I would have to ask the question, how much room is there for that kind of interpretation when we enumerate the commandments? And would it not be easy to say, or perhaps would it not be possible that somebody else could look at the same source material as you and come up with a list where there would be obviously a lot of overlap, but also some different commandments written down. Well, I mean, someone might do that. I mean, I can't stop people from doing that. So what then becomes the purpose of the project to enumerate all the commandments if ultimately you might still have some blind spots or if somebody else may have a list that ends up different, that looks different than yours? Well, I mean, that's the blessings of of doing this in community and I definitely think this will be a communal project that I will either work with people or get feedback from other people and together figure out something to say on these things. But but part of the underlying reasoning for this is let's look at these anti-maskers. I don't really want to talk about them, but here we are. I don't think a lot of them even consider that this would be classified and covered by one of the commandments. To put on a mask in order to save the lives of your neighbors surely is falls under love for neighbor, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> but I don't think people think of it that way. And so it's not so much like, oh, I'm just going to cite the scripture. I want to talk about, hey, if you take this commandment seriously, it's going to change. And you're going to actually think about this intentionally when you put on the mask that I am fulfilling a covenant obligation. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of us did, did do wear a mask, just think, oh, we're supposed, you know, we put on the mask. But how many of us actually think about it that we are glorifying God by the obedience to one of God's commandments when we put on the mask? That's sort of the the purpose of this project is not to really dispute a lot with people, but I think for those of us who are are willing to receive this, we can infuse our entire lives with a deeper spirituality and say, look, this is exactly what it says here, what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to remember these things. That is, there's going to be something at the forefront of our intentionality. And that's why I want to be very deliberate about listing the commandments. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It makes sense. Like I hear what is being attempted in this in this project. Part of me is still trying to think what enumerating these commandments 
defeat a greater purpose because I really like like one of my favorite things about the New Testament was the fulfillment of the old law. You know what I'm saying? Like basically whittling down the love for God and love for neighbor as the primary two commandments means that I don't have to say all this other stuff. You know what I'm saying? It feels a lot like the project that you're undertaking could very much end up being, you know, the Levitical law part two, like where we get to 600 some <laughs> laws that should go without saying, but ultimately need to be said because some people are still not out here getting it. So I see value in that and also value in the exercise of simply letting people know how all these things that we do are ultimately love for God and love for man. But is it saying something about us that this needs to be said at all? Well, how many people out there claim they love their neighbor, but then they're not on the side of Black Lives Matter? Mm -hmm. I think the point of this isn't to just list them, but it's to reflect on them. And I think that's the piece that I want to contribute to. And to say, really, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And that's why we have the 613 commandments by the way i don't did you did i talk about this how maimonides enumerated and listed out the the specific commandments that he thought were the 613 nope okay well he did that in the mission to torah he listed out the 613 commandments in the torah and he did this precisely because of what you were just saying it gives us an opportunity to reflect on like what does love for neighbor mean if you have no additional guidance to that and it just is up to your own sort of personal instinct. Well, those personal instincts are colored so much by our prejudices and our background and our uh, culture, and we don't even think about some of these things that really should be thought about. And that and that gets into like exploring the depth of the tradition. Like I have no objection to people enumerating the commandments and it says, well, there's just two: love for God and love for neighbor. That's fine. That's totally fine. In fact, I don't think there's there's a commandment that we're obligated to keep that wouldn't be covered under one of those two. Mm-hmm. Right? But I want to infuse our lives with a deeper sense of purpose and meaning and joy. That's That's kind of what religion is about, is making meaning out of these things. And it's a way of life. And it's... And, The whole point of this is intentionality and deliberateness. That's the piece that struck out to me about the sacrament prayer. I I think there's something beautiful about tying the mask thing to specific commandments that end up being under the umbrella of love your neighbor. Mm. Anything else I'm missing or any other possible objections? (laughs) Not that we probably have time for, but I really am excited to see what direction and what shape this project takes on because uh, it's very important for the saints to be able to uh, tie the things that we do, for example, Black Lives Matter, to the actual commandments to love God Mm -hmm. and to love your neighbor. Like, that is an important task. And uh, I think in its own way, it is a fulfilling and an answer to President Nelson's call to lead out Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. combating these attitudes and actions of prejudice. Because one of my big complaints about this stuff, particularly when they condemn racism but don't go any further than that, is to let people know what this looks like and what forms it takes. So uh, I'm excited to uh, see what shape this project takes so people can see what Love for Neighbor looks like in our modern day. I just want to say that the thing about the bucket that you were wondering of what I was, what is Derek going to talk about this bucket? Yeah, what is the bucket? We were talking about this before the show started. So, Derek, can you like say something about this bucket? 
And I think, so I've been trying to articulate the difference between me and other more conventional Mormons. Because I'm, I'm faithful and I'm loyal, but I'm not exactly conventional. Okay. And the difference isn't that I'm more liberal or more whatever. I finally was able to articulate what I think is the difference. It has to do with this bucket. Here's my analogy. So if I go down to the river and I dip a bucket into the river, do I have a bucket full of water or do I have a bucket full of river? And my answer is, you don't have a bucket full of river. It's a bucket full of water, not river, no matter how much water you have in the bucket, no matter how big the bucket is, it's not a river in the bucket. The water is no longer flowing. It's no longer connected to its source. And the water is no longer deep and overwhelming. So here's the difference between me and more conventional saints, is that I have jumped deeply into the river of our tradition. I have become more fully alive than I was when I was on the bank. And I think some people dip into, this is the commandment business, like people are gonna dip into the river and get the like five or six commandments because those are probably the ones that their priesthood leaders hit on. Here's why I'm talking about this. I think people are dipping a bucket into the tradition and picking out five or six commandments that they're really working on and that's fair. We no one can. The tradition is overwhelming. the The river is more than we can drink. But what I want to do is say, the commandments that are enumerated in the Temple Recommend interview are probably what people are organizing around their life around, and that's fair. But I want to say, well, what else is there? How can we really soak ourselves deeper into this tradition? And we get to this thinking with the proclamation on the family. Because you know how people take the little proclamation and frame it on their wall? Also remember back in elementary school where they taught you to fold a piece of paper into a little paper cup? Do you remember that? No. You never did that? I never did you that. Can, there's a way of, or maybe it was in Boy Scouts, sort of like, oh, if you're out in the middle of the woods and you happen to have a piece of paper and you need a cup, you can just fold it into this little paper cup. I think people have done that with the proclamation. They've taken this one document folded it up into a little cup and dip that little cup into the river. If you jump into the river, there's more to explore. There's more room to ask questions. There's more complexity and there's going to be mud and dirt. And I think we want to make religion cutesy. And we do that with our pictures of Jesus. But Jesus, he, he walked on water. He annoyed people. He protested. He casted out demons. He got himself executed. And then he rose again. This doesn't fit in a bucket. Because I think it's like really taking our traditions seriously by saying, hey, look, we've got all these commandments. And all of these are given for our benefit. Because why would they be listed out specifically in the Bible or the Book of Mormon or the DNC if just knowing the two big ones, the two big umbrellas covers everything? Does that make a lot of sense now? Does it make more sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> Here's another advantage to my enumerating the commandments project, and it has to do with explaining to others why we do certain things we do. For example, Black Lives Matter protests. People are gonna say, well, why are you doing that? Like, why are you being so offensive or, or weird or liberal? And instead of saying, well, I'm doing it because I want to, I'm gonna say, I'm doing it because I'm commanded to. I've made a covenant to do this. You know, Mormons, they, they don't understand a lot of the things, but they do rec respect the word commandment. They're like, oh, commandment. This isn't even at all a stretch. 
so much of our Black Lives Matter work is literally mourning with those who mourn. If people say, "Why are you? Why are you? Why are you talking about Breonna Taylor in church?" I mean, like that is literally a commandment. It is the covenant, right? It is. There's that you don't. That is what that commandment is made for. There are people who are mourning Breonna's death, and we need to mourn with her, mm-hmm. uh, with those who are mourning her. It's literally one of the reasons we go to church. Yes. Leviticus 19, verse 16, that says, don't stand by idly while your neighbor's blood is shed. We can't, it's not only just not hurting, not killing someone, you can't just stand by and let someone else be killed. And it's the same thing with the Deuteronomy 22, verse 8 commandment. I have memorized commandments that people probably don't even know exist. (laughs) It's the commandment that says that when you build the roof of a new house, you need to put a guardrail or a parapet around the roof lest someone fall off the roof die and then you bear their blood guilt and i think that mask commandment falls as a subset of that commandment that we need to not just avoid murdering but we also need to have structures in place where we protect people from unintentional death so that's another reason to enumerate the commandments all right james is smiling so i did something right he did. He did. So people people probably think I'm a weirdo, but, well, I am. <laughs> but the thing is, I'm really intoxicated by the, the depth of awareness that I have to my belonging into this tradition. I have jumped in. I want other people to jump with me into the tradition. And yes, it will be overwhelming and it'll be overheads. And there's I'm going to probably enumerate over 500 distinct. Just 500, huh? I don't know because I haven't done it yet, but I imagine that if I t- list out all the ones that I s- still think apply to us, I'm taking I could bets. Get, I could get 500, and and this is not going to be um, the new temple recommend questions. <laughs> some of them probably should be. Yeah, but um, I think this is a cool project. So I want feedback. All of you listeners, just get at me with some of your thoughts on this. Like, what do you? What would you benefit from? in terms of this project. Sounds like it's going to be a good time. Sounds like it's going to bear some great fruit. I'm excited for you. I'm excited to be a part of it in whatever way I can be anyway, just because, you know, I have a vested interest in some of those commandments that I don't see in the Temple Recommend interview questions. Anything else in the text that uh, you would like to talk about briefly? No, I don't have anything. All right, cool. Let's go ahead and uh, move on to the housekeeping items here. Before we do that, Just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, when can people, where can people find us? You can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely want to send a special thank you to Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, and uh, Eden Wen for managing our social media and just otherwise making what we do more accessible to you guys. So 
Thank you. Special thanks to all you guys and special thanks as well to our latest collaborators on the Facebook page. Rackham, thank you. Liberty Stump, thank you for joining our collaborator community. We really do appreciate your guys' support. If you guys still want to join the collaborator community, not too late. You guys can go to glow.fm slash beyond the block to offer up whatever contribution you'd like and then be sure to request access to our Facebook community group. We will send you a link when you sign up and then you can join our collaborator community and be part of deciding how we you know what kind of bonus episodes we do what kind of topics we focus on what kind of media we're going to be coming out with in the coming year and a lot more you can provide some feedback give us some ideas for the show you can also access our notes all kinds of things so uh if you want up on that you can just join the collaborator community uh with that if there's nothing else till we meet again next week thank you guys for joining us yeah thank you so much for joining us see you next week bye